Welcome to the Evidence to Impact podcast, the podcast that brings together academic researchers, government partners, and others outside of academia to talk about research insights and real-world policy solutions in Pennsylvania and beyond. I'm Michael Donovan, the Director of Policy and Outreach at Penn State's Administrative Data Accelerator. Today on the Evidence to Impact podcast, we have Carol L. Clancy, Director of the Bureau of Special Education at the Pennsylvania Department of Education, as well as Dr. Paul Morgan, who serves as the Professor of Education in the Education and Policy Studies Department and is the Director of the Center for Educational Disparities Research at Penn State University. Also joining us is Dr. Adrian Woods, who serves as a postdoctoral research scholar, also in the Education and Policy Department at Penn State. Thank you all so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time in these uh, challenging circumstances. So um, just to start things off, I'd love to have our, our guests have a little bit of an awareness of, of your backgrounds and some of your, your research interests and your, your, your actual content of your work. So maybe if we could start with you, Carol, that'd be wonderful. Sure. So I have over 25 years of experience in the field of special education. I started as an educator. Then I spent some time in lead teacher positions, eventually moving into leadership positions within uh, a variety of uh, school districts across Pennsylvania, urban, suburban, and rural. I've been at the Bureau of Special Education a little over a year. I started July a year ago. Great. Thank you so much. Paul, could you give us a, a little rundown on your background? I'm um, sure. I have about six years of experience working in um, special education or clinical settings to assist children, adolescents, um, adults with disabilities uh, to thrive. I've been at Penn State since about 2004, and much of my research focuses on trying to empirically understand um, who starts to struggle early on in school, either academically or behaviorally, what happens to those children over time and how can we better assist those children to, to thrive. And a particular focus on that research is um, the needs of students with disabilities. Great, thank you, welcome. And last but not least, Adrian. Hi, um, I'm Adrian. I am a postdoctoral scholar. I work with Paul in the Ed Policy Department. I've been here, this is starting my third year actually. Um, I got my PhD in education and psychology from the University of Michigan in 2018. And so I think this is my ninth year working in, uh, in research. I look at the intersections of development and schooling, um, and I'm specifically interested in educational disparities, particularly for children with disabilities. So my, my goal is to try and understand the experiences of children attending U.S. schools in hopes that we can uh, improve educational and societal um, opportunities and outcomes for these children. Great. Once again, thank you all for being here today. Uh, before we really get into how the uh, pandemic has really changed so much uh, for, for students and um, members of the education community, I really wanted to, to pose a question to Carol to really kind of understand what um, special education service delivery typically looks like in Pennsylvania, uh, as well as kind of a, a framework of the, the federal and state uh, kind of regulatory requirements that, that we're looking at in a typical environment. Sure. Um, so special education is known as specially designed instruction or related services 
for students with disabilities that are eligible under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which is the federal law um, mandating the services for students with disabilities. In Pennsylvania, the state law is Chapter 14 of the PA Code. And both of those um, laws articulate the um, requirement for the public school system to provide a free and appropriate public education for students that are eligible under that particular law. The services are individualized, um, and each student who is eligible has something called an individualized education program, an IEP. That particular document articulates what are the services and how are the services um, delivered to ensure that these students with disabilities make meaningful progress in school. And what it looks like in school is really different student to student. Um, most schools have an array of services within their school system, ranging from specialized classrooms, specialized instruction, occupational therapy, physical therapy, um, but the majority of the students with disabilities are educated uh, within the regular education classes with uh, services um, coming to them in that environment. Understood. And we, uh, we really should, as we've discussed in our, our prior uh, conversations, we really need to address uh, at this point some of the, the unbelievable burdens that are on uh, the workforce, uh, our teachers, our administrators, our paraprofessionals. Uh, counselors and all of the other support staff uh, that are that are truly going on right now in this these heroic efforts uh, undertaken by these groups. Um, could you really discuss uh, what you're hearing from the front lines? Yes. Well, um, we we have daily communication with the field in in some capacity, and it's been a very undaunting time for our educators they are working diligently to try to shift the entire educational system from how we used to know it to this new learning environment. Um, they are working very hard, but it requires them to do a tremendous amount of planning, preparation, as well as a whole new array of resources that need to be provided for students, whether they are in a hybrid uh, environment, which means they are spending some of the time in school and some of the time at home, or if they are in a full remote environment, which means they are spending um, all of their time at home receiving instruction uh, virtually online, either synchronously or asynchronously. Um, it's been quite a struggle. What has made it, the sands continue to shift. So it's very difficult for the educators to, um, work in a predictable environment when as they start to plan forward for tomorrow's lesson or the next day's lesson or a week in advance as we have trained them to do, um, things suddenly shift because of the transmission rate of the virus and they have to go to plan B, C, or D um, with all of the um, variables that go into that decision. So at this moment in time, the entire educational system and everyone employed there from the school administrators down to the um, teachers, paraprofessionals, custodial staff to bus drivers are just in this continual flux of uncertainty, just doing the best they can to provide education to our students. Yeah, it's just such an unbelievably challenging time for, for so many, um, you know, not, notwithstanding all the, all the challenges to, to the student body, of course. Um, I do wonder, um, there has been the ability to um, 
ascertain best practices uh, and to shift from what really was the um, emergency period uh, as uh, here in Pennsylvania, the, the transmission rates of the pandemic were, were so great in the spring, um, it really shifted from an emergency um, to the ability to really uh, learn from some best practices in what the, the fall would look like in the 2021 uh, school year. Now we're currently uh, well into that uh, at the time of recording here in, in mid-November. Um, could you discuss some of the uh, ways that um, the educational models have been modified or technology has improved or what have been some of the, the differences between the, the emergency period and the, uh, the fall? Sure. So first and foremost was the health and safety of um, all of our students. So each school district needed to create a health and safety plan, which articulated every step and protocol that was going to be followed as students transitioned um, to and from school. Then schools, um, based on what their transmission rate was um, at the start of the school year, made a plan through their school boards, um, whether they were going to open uh, full in-person, uh, whether they were going to have a hybrid schedule, or whether they were going to be full remote. In Pennsylvania, it's a local control state, which means the school boards or the local school districts make the decision what's based for, best for their community. Um, across Pennsylvania, from the southeast up into the, the northwest, it's a very different um, region to region. So each school district made their best plan on how to open in the fall. There have been enhancements across the Commonwealth regarding um, the ability to provide synchronous virtual services. So when, in the spring, there was a very quick pivot into the homes and not all school systems were equipped with the technology or the bandwidth to offer synchronous virtual services across the Commonwealth. And it certainly did reveal the needs across the Commonwealth. Um, since that time, there has been expansive efforts uh, from the state, from the school districts, from the intermediate units to increase the capacity um, for students to have synchronous learning experiences. So there's been um, an array of resources, uh, Chromebooks, um, laptops, uh, robots, um, virtual occupational services, speech and language services, um, partnerships with the public broadcast systems television stations where they are um, projecting lessons online on the television, excuse me, so that um, students are able to gain instruction if they're in very remote settings from the television. We have two um, strong initiatives that are occurring right now, the Distance Learning Initiative, which is partnered with Penn State, where we are working with school districts to enhance their learning um, management system. And our most recent endeavor is our connected learning initiative where we're working with PBS to expand the internet capacity through data casting that would enable more students to access the internet or access synchronous um, learning across the Commonwealth um, to uh, support some of those areas where we are still remote. Um, the Pennsylvania Department of Education created the Roadmap to Success the leadership for equitable school systems was designated six different areas um, that school districts needed to focus on when they opened school to make sure that um, there was equitable approach across the Commonwealth to the best ability. Um, that included the need to address the um, social emotional wellness 
of our students and our staff. Um, we are all in very uncertain times and very isolated. And our students who have depended on the school system for a lot of their cares, a lot of their connections to life, their basic needs such as breakfast and lunch and, and so on, um, have not had ex um, access to their school buildings. So um, there were initiatives to make sure that the meals were continuing, that the basic needs were continuing, as well as school systems preparing for students to transition back to school and ensuring that they are um, being aware that they may need additional supports for their social and emotional wellness. Thank you, Carolyn. Thank you uh, to yourself and, and the rest of your colleagues at um, Pennsylvania Department of Education for all the hard work you're, you're doing to support our, our workforce. It's uh, under exceptional burden right now. Um, I'd love to turn to uh, Adrian and Paul um, there's really a, um, you know, you yourselves and, and your colleagues in, in the subject matter expert space around the country and the world have, have been watching the developments of the last 10 months um, with uh, much concern um, about the uh, longitudinal outcomes for these children and, and also for um, all those affected, uh, including the, um, the workforce, which are really dealing with a significant amount of trauma. Um, I wonder if we could just open up the floor to discuss, um, you know, what some of the science that, that you all study um, tells us uh, that we could uh, give to policymakers to, to best help students with disabilities in the coming months, um, as well as, as general uh, uh, educational delivery. Um, what have we learned from the last eight months? What are we missing? <clears throat> uh, I, if, I would say, <clears throat> from my perspective, that I note a couple of things. One, I think schools have been um, engaging in enormous efforts on under uh, uh, short turnaround times to make things work um, for for children and uh, attending uh, schools in the Commonwealth and as well as across the United States. So, um, you know, uh, my uh, heart goes out to to all the educators who are working under such uh, uh, difficult circumstances families, the children, um, it really has been a, an enormous challenge. Um, I would say, speaking from my standpoint as a researcher, I'd say a couple things. Um, one, the impacts are likely to be negative, and two, they're likely to be especially uh, disproportionately experienced by certain student populations. So schools serve as community backbones for their communities. Um, uh, uh, when children go to school, parents can go to work. Um, when children go to school, they have experiences that help them thrive, both uh, academically, cognitively, physically, behaviorally. Uh, when schools are not in session, many things don't happen that might take place. Um, teachers noticing a child's uh, struggles, um, some potential awareness of, of, of something that might be going on in the family. Uh, children aren't able to do music uh, lessons or PE or career and technical education in the same way. And so as we shift to remote, um, uh, there, I think there's learning loss that takes place. And then if we can't get children to access the instruction remotely because of limitations in their access to technology, uh, and if the instruction that we're providing is, is, is limited, it's likely to keep good things from happening for children to um, to, to learn um, and develop. 
And I do worry, especially for certain populations, children who are poor, uh, children of color, children with disabilities, who oftentimes experience uh, uh, even more disadvantages that can interfere with their, their learning and the ability to benefit from remote instruction. So I know that educators have done uh, taken enormous strides or do, and working under really difficult circumstances. Um, and I applaud their efforts, uh, uh, you know, in a very heartfelt way as a as an educator myself, um, I'm speaking more broadly to focus on po policymakers and our discussions and how we're arranging um, our community efforts for the pandemic. And we really need to take it seriously and reduce transmission. And we have to be aware of having schools closed or shifting mostly to remote is non optimal and is likely especially disadvantaging certain uh, student populations. Yeah, I, I would echo that I agree with everything Paul said. Um, I think, you know, we were approached by the Social Science Research Institute here at Penn State to write a blog post about COVID-19 and how that might be impacting students in Pennsylvania, specifically students with disabilities. So we published this in May, and that was at the end of that first lockdown. There were schools that had moved entirely on, you know, remote for, for all students, K through 12. There were schools who just shut down entirely and the school year ended early. And so our focus at that time was trying to understand what do we do right now to prepare for the fall? Um, and to prepare for students who might have experienced not only the learning loss that occurs during the summer months when students aren't meeting, which we know can be especially severe for, as Paul mentioned, students from historically marginalized or disadvantaged backgrounds, but there might be extra learning loss that's occurred because schools have either ended prematurely or gone online. Um, so, it, you know, and to, to reiterate what, what Carol was saying, it's this is a very unprecedented time and sort of everyone is trying to figure out what to do as it happens. Mm -hmm. So I think one thing that's really important to continually do is to look back over the past several months and look at things we've tried and see where we've been and, and how to move forward. Um, even if we look around at other neighboring states, I know this past weekend, the state of Michigan just restrict, restricted um, gatherings again, imposed more lockdowns because the rates that are rising there as well as they are here too in Pennsylvania. One thing they did that I found especially interesting was they've moved all high schools to virtual learning, but they've left K through eight schools open and classes can meet in person um, through middle school with the exception of students in special education. So students in special education are still allowed to go to their in-person classes if they're in high school. And the reason they said they're doing this is because we have a better understanding now of transmission rates and of, of how this virus is spreading. I think they were worried that students at these older grade levels have more clubs and sports and activities where they're meeting in groups and that might be a risk for the virus to spread. Um, so there are, you know, it's, it's a stark difference from early in 2020 when everything was closed and you were trying to do virtual learning for kindergartners through, you know, high schoolers, which it, it looks very different. So I think that was a challenge that we faced in writing this blog post. Um, a challenge that everyone faces is not what do you do, but there are so many resources out there for parents, for teachers, and it's sort of difficult to sometimes wean through all of those resources that are potentially available. So we tried to point to a couple of different sources. And I know there are some really great sources on the Pennsylvania's Department of Special Education website. 
Um, one of the main sources is um, from the Office of Special Education Programs, OSEP, Ideas That Work series. Um, teachers can go there. They have a, a wide variety of topics. There's a filtering function so you can search for different uh, instructional activities that are demonstrated to work with evidence-based uh, practices. You can search by age, by the audience, by the topic or the academic subject. The Council for Exceptional Children has forums for teachers. So if teachers are looking for resources or, or want to bounce ideas off of each other, they can go online and join a forum and sort of read through what other people are doing, what's been working, what's not been working. And then the National Center for Learning Disabilities is a really great pay place for parents to connect with each other and to find resources and to, you know, informally and formally um, share what's been working and not working. I've also heard that there are a lot of parents that might be connecting through social media sites and Facebook sites and sort of um, social networking pages for parents of children with disabilities. And so that might be ways for you know, ideas to be spread and shared. Um, not that that wasn't happening before the pandemic, but I'm sure it's especially uh, relevant now. And then the other thing that I wanted to say was, I, I do tend to be somewhat of a glass half full person, <laughs> but one of the things that I think we can take away from this is the opportunities for the future. Um, remote instruction can be especially challenging for some students and especially students with disabilities in many different ways. But at the same time, one sentiment that I've heard echoed by a number of different re researchers, scholars, um, parents, is that there are some students who are they're finding that they're actually thriving in a remote setting. Um, some students who, for whatever reason, are doing better when instruction has gone virtual. Um, maybe students who have had trouble self-regulating in the classroom, they might be more disruptive to other students, but it, somehow the way that they learn is, is by moving, let's say. So um, whereas that might be difficult to manage in a setting, a classroom setting with multiple other students when they're at home and they're able to you know, have multiple different stimulus um, stimuli going at the same time, or they're able to walk around the room um, or take more frequent breaks than happen in a in a typical classroom. They, they some, sometimes seem to be doing better. So one of the things we might want to think about moving forward is how we can incorporate some of these changes into the future um, and continue trying to provide the best education for every student to, to their maximum extent. So... Thank you, Adrian. That's mm -hmm. that's uh, really a, a number of wonderful resources, which we'll be happy to link to in the uh, show notes uh, for our podcast episode. Uh, purely from an, an anecdotal anecdotal perspective, um, I will say that my uh, fiance is a ninth grade uh, health and wellness teacher here in State College uh, at the high school, and uh, she and her colleagues have just been really overwhelmed at the maturity and the uh, resilience of some of her kids uh, coming in. Um, really, it's been it's been one of the best things to watch that um, you know the the challenges of of teaching in this uh, tumultuous period have uh, not been about student behavior in the classroom or remote. It's been about technological challenges, educational model shifts, uh, and and the uh, the moving target um, as as Carol uh, talked about. So uh, while anecdotal, uh, hopefully that is a. a uh, impact felt um, across the Commonwealth and across uh, the U.S. Um, I think 
Adrian, your points are, are so well-founded as well as we enter into um, really dark challenges of the fall and the, and the late fall and the winter here um, as a uh, resurgence of infections um, brings up further discussions of uh, shutdowns. I would like to talk a little bit about how our two communities can better partner. Um, knowing that there's a, a wealth of um, insight and expertise coming from our academic community and uh, unbelievable amount of expertise and uh, practical experience coming from our uh, government partner community. I wonder if we could just even brainstorm about ways to, to better find um, synergies or opportunities for synergies there. I don't know if anything comes to mind um, from any of you here today. Well, I mean, we currently are, the PDE is currently partnering with Penn State for the distance learning initiative where um, Penn State is providing training um, to any, any LEA that wants to participate on developing strong learning platforms, management systems. So um, it certainly has not been the business that most public schools have been in. So they had to design it on the fly in the spring without a lot of formalized training, but the expertise of Penn State is helping us support all of the LEAs across the Commonwealth to enhance what they um, tried to develop over the summertime, um, knowing that we are unfortunately in this circumstance a little bit longer. So that's just an example of um, higher ed supporting K through 12 education through the conduit of the state kind of being the in-between. And we're just really appreciative of that partnership and the feedback from the LEAs that are participating has been very positive. I've, uh, I've been impressed by our local schools, which seem to have adopted a, a workable schedule of um, in-person one day remote the next. Um, we're getting notices every week from the superintendent about um, the case counts and uh, the uh, numerical indicators they're relying on in terms of the decision to remain open. Um, they're doing contact tracing and quarantining with staff for children that um, have COVID-19 and they're letting uh, parents of the school system know quite quickly when that occurs, which uh, I've appreciated. Uh, as a parent, I think, you know, if I if I was going to sit back and, and sort of say what what should we be doing, I, I'd say, based on what I'm seeing from the academic research, probably lean towards a couple of things. Um, one of which trying to keep schools open whenever possible, you know, safely. But it's it, it's I think it's um, from what I'm seeing in the academic research and, and um, policy statements. The, uh, keeping schools open has many benefits and the transmission rates in schools tend to be l lower than some of the other um, uh, gathering places that we see say in, in gyms or bars or um, um, rallies, things like this. So, um, and, and children don't seem to be very affected on, on average, you know, some, there are some tragic instances, but, um, if possible, try and keep schools open um, when, however, however, when we can and when we can do so safely. Um, when we're doing remote instruction, um, uh, trying to, especially for kids with disabilities, try and keep it um, individualized, consistent, 
um, of high quality, I think is beneficial. And, I, you know, I think for those students that we, we really have concerns about their ability to benefit from regular remote instruction, I think there's a good case to be made for certain populations coming into school with more regularity um, uh, and receiving services in person um, or more broadly beyond just students with disabilities, other students that are struggling, having those students come into schools in person to receive um, ongoing tutoring, uh, particularly when we know that the, the students are uh, struggling academically, they're behind, and we have a pretty good inclination to think that the remote instruction is, is unlikely to um, um, have them catch up or maintain pace. So, you know, those are be some suggestions I would tend to make uh, based on what I'm seeing from the academic research. Um, differentiating the instruction, um, making it of high quality, teaching skills directly with lots of opportunities to practice, monitoring students' performance over time using some kind of curriculum-based measurement or goal, uh, goal uh, tracking of academic performance or behavioral performance or the standard recommendations that you would see in the academic literature and, and extending those to remote settings, um, I think is a good bet. And also for those kids that we know are, are, are especially likely to be struggling, um, increasing their access to in-person instruction, I think is, is makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I want to echo too that uh, sort of harkening back to something Michael said earlier, um, and I can't claim this as as my own words. It's actually from Preeti Milani, who's at the University of Michigan in the Center of Infectious Diseases and Geriatric Medicine. But she said that the return to learning is kind of trying to like make a boat out of a car. Um, you know, it's imperfect, but we can get it to the point where it more or less floats. <laughs> so it, we're all kind of trying to put a system together that works and, and it's, it's challenging for everyone, but it can be especially challenging for students with disabilities, like Paul said. Uh, and like Carol said, the whole point of special education is that it's individualized. It's dependent on what the students' needs are, how they're learning, what works best for them. Um, so I think those points are all very, very well made. Um, I also really like the idea that we should be keeping schools open to the extent that we can and having, you know, maybe we just, what again, like what we did in March and in April and in May was to close all schools right off the bat. And now we're realizing that might not be necessary for the reasons Paul mentioned, that the rates of transmission are somewhat lower in schools, that a lot of schools are actually, when they follow the social distancing protocols and the personal protective equipment, wearing masks, they're actually fairly safe places to be. So we're recognizing that it is possible for students to be learning in the building and to be attending in-person classes, especially those students who, for instance, might have emotional um, emotional needs that require them to be around an adult. Um, so I think finding a way to keep the schools open is probably one of the best ways to go. I would also like to reiterate that I think we're all trying to work together to the best extent possible. Um, not only to make sure that children are taken care of, but to also make sure that adults are being taken care of, that the staff in the schools, that their emotional well-being is being addressed. Um, 
One thing that I have been thinking about and that the first thing that came to mind, Michael, when you asked the question about how we can be partnering, a lot of websites, a lot of advice, a lot of scholars are calling for increasingly monitoring data. And part of me as essentially a data scientist, (laughs) mostly spends all day working with data, I wonder how we're collecting that data and how we're individualizing it and who's analyzing it. And if there are ways that we as researchers can be partnering with schools and communities and the state to help not only collect the data, but to analyze the data and make sure that students, especially students with disabilities, are meeting the goals of their IEPs, that are, they're making appropriate growth. Um, you know, it's not the, the Supreme Court in 2017 uh, actually clarified that IEPs have to enable students to make progress. That's not just enough that they're getting services, but there has to be some measurable marker of progress, which of course has been thrown <laughs> into disarray with COVID because we don't know what progress is going to look like. So everything has been very individualized. It's left up to the schools. It's left up to the teachers, the caseworkers, the parents. But my my gut, gut reaction is to say, how can we help with that data aspect of it? And how can we be um, alleviating some of the burden that's falling on teachers and parents and caseworkers at this point? Just an idea. <laughs> yeah. And I do think there are certain student populations that we can reasonably expect the pandemic to have an additional negative impact on. And therefore, we should be proactive to try and provide additional assistance to those student groups. So low-income students, students with disabilities um, are, you know, especially likely to be disadvantaged, I think, in some ways by the pandemic and and the the necessary triaging that we've had to do educationally. Um, And if there's ways to provide additional supports for those students with the idea that we're we're expecting those groups to be more likely to struggle. And so we're we're anticipating that through additional supports proactively. Um, You know, there's a we, we all know from our um, careers in investing uh, time and effort to, to children is that you can pay for it now or you can pay for it later. And when you pay for it later, you tend to pay a lot more. So when um, students aren't getting uh, you know, high quality educational experiences, um, when they're having difficulty accessing uh, educational material remotely, when they're more inclined to drop out, these things tend to aggregate in terms of, of of costs later to society that if we if we spent proactively and wisely in investments in children and youth now, we're likely to experience uh, we're likely to avoid later costs and experience greater economic uh, uh, productivity uh, as a result. So I would just encourage us to look at this as a necessary time for ex- investment. Um, particularly in those students' groups that we should be especially worried about. That's, I mean, very, very wise words. I think it uh, makes so much sense. I also uh, came to mind as we were discussing uh, some of the other kind of competencies of the academic community that really could be of support to our, our uh, educational partners uh, now. Um, as you mentioned, Paul, the 
the local response here in State College Area School District uh, certainly I know has uh, leveraged some of the expertise of epidemiology and, and uh, some of the, the teams here in the Center for Infectious Disease. Um, so um, leveraging um, the skill sets that uh, academics have in, in other disciplines. Uh, I also think about the benefits that uh, could come from innovations in instructional design, um, especially in um, remote delivered um, curriculum, um, especially while that's incredibly challenging um, on a tailored individual basis, there's, there certainly must be room for growth, especially in improving the um, hastily thrown together um, programs, I'd imagine. Um, there's just a couple more ideas that came to mind. Um, Carol, are there any gaps in particular that, um, that PDE is experiencing that um, you'd like to bring up that, that maybe academic partners could be supportive of? Um, I think we highlighted um, many of the challenges through this conversation, but areas we always are trying to enhance is the instructional delivery in this new environment. Uh, the patent website, as Adrian mentioned, um, Pennsylvania Training Technical Network, um, has an array of resources for um, students with disabilities, educators with disabilities, and families who are just a critical partner in this process who are struggling as much as the educators. So the PET and website provides instructional um, supports as well as live coaching for families and educators in particular areas such as behavior, autism, or our dyslexia pilot. So, um, I mean, the gaps pretty much are revealed. It's just um, the more there is to help fill them during this transition is critical. And um, we keep adding to that system and all of the websites that Adrian spoke to provide a plethora of supports to fill the instructional gap. We are continuing to work on the uh, internet capacity across the Commonwealth and areas where are significantly remote, where children are having difficulty even accessing cable television. So we have an initiative um, where the intermediate units are working with families and PBS company, PBS stations to provide school in a bag, which includes inter, uh, antennas and resources um, and Raspberry Pis so that they can go into the home and a Raspberry Pi is a piece of technology that can simulate the online experience offline. So we can go into the home, have all the resources that the school has loaded onto it, multiple students in multiple grade levels from the same school system can log on to it, do their work, and then it can connect to internet and upload all of their work. So. Thank you all so much for uh, really an excellent conversation. I do want to give you all an opportunity for, for any closing comments or future-oriented kind of food for thought as we, as we go forward. Um, so, Carol, any ideas, uh, thoughts going forward? Well, I just thank you very much for inviting me to be here and the attention that you're giving to a very important um, cause and something that's very we're very passionate about is the education of students with disabilities. Uh, so I appreciate you putting this at the front of this conversation because these students need 
a little bit more, a little bit extra, and can't certainly we can't forget about them during this transition. And Adrian and Paul's perspectives are, are really spot on um, regarding their advice and, and what we need to do to continue to improve this the outcome for students with disabilities and not allow them to suffer, you know, constant unintended consequences of this situation. I would just like to applaud uh, Carol and her staff and really all the teachers and, and uh, parents who are trying to navigate this uh, just extraordinarily challenging time. Um, and I just, you know, if we can do our best to think creatively and also in an anticipatory manner about how to best help those most at risk, I think it will have many returns to both the, in, the individual, the child, their families, and our society. So providing those extra supports to children that we know are struggling and would, would benefit, I think, is um, our, our investments well made from my perspective. Um, yeah, I just want to echo what everything Paul said completely agree with. Um, I want to thank Carol. I know that you've spent a lot of time working on those resources for parents, the websites that you've put together, the guidance, especially for students with disabilities in schools, navigating IEPs at the beginning of the year and how to evaluate and monitor what's been going on in the summer. Um, I would say that I have some hopes moving forward. I hope that we are able to use this time as um, an opportunity for increased partnership, uh, both at a university research level, partnering increasingly with local schools. And as this is an evidence to impact podcast, I hope we're mm -hmm. able to forge these connections and move forward with them in the future. Um, I also hope that, you know, as as Carol said, um, there this, there's a really gargantuan effort going on by not only educators, but parents and everyone's lives have been disrupted and everyone is rising to the challenge um, in a pretty inspiring way and in many cases. So I hope that we use this as an opportunity for parents and educators to increasingly partner and to work together with empathy and understanding and that those connections that are formed now continue in the future. Um, it's especially, you know, it's important for everybody, but it's especially important for kids with disabilities. And as Paul mentioned, kids with disabilities who might experience other disadvantage beyond just having um, special learning needs. So, and I want to thank Michael, you for having us on this podcast. I think this is a, an awesome um, opportunity to spread our, our expertise to a wider audience. So thank you for having us. Of course. Thank you so much. I, I would like again to thank my guest today. Carol Clancy, who serves as the Director of the Bureau of Special Education at the Pennsylvania Department of Education. Dr. Paul Morgan, Professor of Education in Education Policy Studies and the Director in, of the Center for Educational Disparities Research at Penn State University. And Dr. Adrian Woods, Postdoctoral Research Scholar at the Educational Policy Department at Penn State as well. And finally, I'd like to thank Melissa Krug, our producer here at the Evidence to Impact podcast, for all of her hard work. And with that, we'll bring this episode to a close. Many thanks to my guests. Again, I'm your host, Michael Donovan, a 
Director of Policy and Outreach at Penn State's Administrative Data Accelerator and the Associate Director at the Evidence to Impact Collaborative. And this has been another episode of the Evidence to Impact podcast. Thanks for listening.